Hello and welcome to episode seven of The Word on Wellbeing, Meridian Wellbeing's fortnightly podcast where we discuss everything going on in the world of mental health and wellbeing. Today I'm very fortunate to have Dr. Anna Mandeville, a clinical health psychologist and the divisional lead for psychology for Enfield with us. Hello Anna. Hi, great to be here, thanks for inviting me. Well thank you for joining us, I know it's a, I mean certainly sort of for uh for, for, for the NHS, it's certainly a very busy time, so I really do appreciate you giving up a bit of your time to come and chat to us. So right off the bat, what's a clinical health psychologist? A clinical health psychologist is a clinical psychologist who has trained, oh, so who has a special interest in physical health and in health um, psychology. So a health psychologist will work alongside, usually, teams of doctors, nurses, it might be in an acute setting or in a community setting and, and might do lots of things, actually. As well as working directly with the patient, um, they might help doctors to, to, and, and patients to make treatment uh, choices about treatments, different decisions about treatments and what's the best way to go with that person. So often you're seeing people with quite complex presentations and complex conditions so you might help the doctors to, to think well you know what's the right route for this person how will they handle it psychologically health psychologists uh, can I just unpick that what does presentation mm. mean in that context can, can I just unpick that for a second did I use the word presentation I, yes I suppose I was thinking sorry in terms of the kinds of patients that you would see no that makes perfect sense it's, it's a bit of a medical term sorry it's a little bit about no, no, like no. you know you, you say well, what what are you presenting with you know is, is it a pelvic pain is it an MSK pain is it so that's, that's a bit of a medical term. That, that's not a problem at all. It's really about, you know, part of my, my role is just to sort of to, to sort of just clarify things and stuff like that, because obviously we want this to be as successful as possible. So no, no, that's really not a problem at all. Don't, 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 don't worry at all. So I imagine then it's in- interesting. And I think that the, this is a really interesting topic because obviously something we'll come on to a bit later is obviously your work on pain management. But I suppose it's something that not everyone's going to be aware of, or at least kind of having the front of their minds, that kind of connection between our kind of um, our psychological state and, and physical, our physical health. So <laughs> I imagine, uh, so I imagine then it must be, how do you, how do you find when you're, when you're, when you're dealing with patients, when you're speaking with patients who have physical pains, but there are, it's being affected by perhaps their psychological state or an illness or a condition. How, how do you find that? How do people respond respond to the kind of things that you're suggesting? Definitely. So if I just if I just take that question in two parts, Fine. I think one one thing that's very fascinating is that actually getting the psychology right in physical health is helping you to control, if you like, some some really key outcomes for patients. So if you just take surgery, for example. If you get that pre-surgical conversation right with a patient and help them to be less anxious, of course, mm. everyone's going to be anxious when they're having surgery. But if, if you get that information right and the kind of relationship right between the patient and doctor, what studies have shown is that patients will actually bleed less. Wow. Be really? sick less. Yeah. Really and go home sooner. Yeah. So I think wow. I think for me, for me, uh, a lot of my career, people have been thinking, oh, health psychology is a bit like a bit of extra counselling around your health. Mm. And I'm like, well, actually, no, it's if we get things right in terms of looking after patients psychologically, 
in that physical health setting, we're really impacting some very hard medical variables. So it's, it's oh, really interesting and actually it really fits in with something. I mean, I've been touch wood fortunate not to have to go under, have surgery and things like that. Unfortunately, my wife uh, has had various uh, bits and pieces uh, on various occasions. In the past, she had mainly because in the past she had a brain tumor. She's absolutely fine now, I should say. But it's interesting what you're saying because I remember one of the one of her real kind of memories of going through the treatment and things like that, um, particularly the chemo, was that they would literally bring the bag into the room and she would feel nauseous. That association between the, the drugs, the medication and her kind of psychological state and then that transferring into that kind of physical illness. And Ab- it, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I mean, what you're saying there is, a, is, is that case of classical case of classical conditioning, you know, where, where the nausea has been paired with the sight of, of, of the bag. And so immediately, and we see these effects when we go to the dentist, for example, sometimes yep. you, you're sitting yep. in the waiting room, suddenly your tooth is hurting, you know, so there's, there's lots of ways that our psychology, you know, pairs with, with treatments and that can influence them really positively. For example, say there's a doctor that you really trust and they're going to come and see you, you know, that will help you decrease your heart rate, decrease your cortisol because you, you trust, mm. trust that person. But then like if you've had an aversive experience in the past, you know, you see a chemo bag, immediately you feel sick before and that is is quite psychologically it's kind of psychological priming that's fascinating because i mean you think that but i imagine the science of psychology and psychiatry study of the mind has been around for probably what 150 200 years yeah something like that something like that and yet it's still there's still that kind of slight disconnect perhaps just in the public sphere between understanding that actually what we're thinking or at least what's going on in our mind can have an effect on our body and yet that just doesn't seem to be but i'm just thinking that we're just not aware of that we're not aware of how how we can have an effect we can make ourselves feel ill or make ourselves feel happy physically by what we're thinking or by what's impacting on our minds i know i've certainly felt that when i've had you know when i've had uh, anxiety or worry or uh, on, on the odd occasion a panic attack it is sort of that that physical feeling you know you feel it in your chest that kind of feeling of almost constriction and yet actually what's going on it, it is in your mind so it's it's fascinating to see uh, how uh, how the, the mind can affect the body and and that at least in the public sphere perhaps we're not as aware of that as we should be I mean maybe I'm completely wrong there what do you what do you think yeah you know, I, th- I think it's really really interesting because I, I think that if we look at our culture and our relationship to medicine, you know, we've sort of grown up, at least, you know, I, I still grew up, like, grew up like this, thinking, well, you know, if there's something wrong with you, you go to the doctor, they give you a tablet, they give you an injection, or they give you a surgery, and then you go away again. So, so we're trained from an early age, if you like, really, that if we've got a physical feeling in our body, we go to the doctor and they're doing something physical, hopefully it goes away, and then we go back to how we were before. And, that, and that's our sort of cultural model, really. And in a sense, we're quite, I suppose, without realising it, sort of dependent on, on doctors in that way. And, mm. and I think, you know, I don't think as a culture we think very clearly yet about how we can really influence our own physical, you know, treat the physical with the physical. But as you quite rightly say, you know, you made a great link there between what thoughts are going on in your mind and what's happening in your body. And of course, that's exactly right, because every thought that we have is a is a brain event. Mm. It moves our brain, doesn't it? And we have this great thing that I, I teach to um, to uh, my my patients and clients, which came from cognitive behavior therapy, which is called the hot cross bun. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No, no, I haven't. I, it's making me hungry, but I haven't heard of it. Um, and you can imagine um, it's called a hot cross bun, because if you imagine there's a, a cross in the middle, and if you okay. imagine on the ends of, this is where 
where where we need a whiteboard, but you can't have that in a podcast. Um, if you imagine on the ends of the of the cross, so at the top we've got thoughts, and if we go around to the next one, we've got feelings, and then if we go around to the bottom, we've got behavior. Okay. And the other side is physiology. So, so if we if we think of ourselves in this sort of hot cross bun model, then every thought we have um, has a physiological effect. And it has an emotional effect and it has a behavioral effect. So, for example, the the classic example that we use in cognitive therapy often is like if you walk down the road and you see your friend on the other side of the road and they ignore you. Well, you know, straight away, you're going to have a thought about that. So, for example, you know, if it was me, quite an anxious person, I might be, oh, my God, I must have upset them. They're never going to speak to me again. So in psychology, we call that a catastrophic thought because you've sort of jumped to that conclusion but then I might feel a bit sick I'd have a a knot in my stomach which is a physiology bit of the hot cross bun and feel maybe anxious you know a bit panicky and then my behavior might be I, I might run up to them and say oh my god you've ignored me you know why have you done that so so it's to understand ourselves the hot cross bun model is actually really practical and it brings in everything, our thoughts, our feelings, our physiology, and our behaviours. That's, that's really interesting. That, I mean, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And it really kind of, it really ties in with some of the bits and pieces over, for example, I, I, I read uh, philosophy at university. As you can see, it was a very useful thing to study. But one of the thing, one of the big ideas within philosophy, going back to the Greeks and for, even further, is the idea of the kind of division between the mind and the body and that how that's been going on, the idea of the kind of duality or the the mono state and things like that and how and trying to make that kind of that reconciling those different ideas of the kind of the mind being this somehow this higher state uh, often where the soul is if you believe in the soul and the body being the much more animalistic in some ways and actually the reality is that i suppose that the, the human the human being the human condition is is far more complex and you know if there is the the kind of what is going on up here is directly connected to what's going on everywhere else um and it, it you know and also how we're expressing ourselves how we're feeling and things like that. and as you said the sort of behavior and it, i find this sort of i find this really interesting because it gives us a different take on why we do things and i personally i'm i guess i'm a sort of self-taught student of humanity i just find it very interesting about why people do things understanding to me is very important understanding people's uh, decisions and things like that and i suppose we like to think of ourselves as being very rational but actually when we get back to it many of the decisions we make are actually based on much more kind of axiomatic fundamental things which we don't necessarily have control or even awareness and i suppose if we look at some of the bits and pieces going on in the world today um, perhaps uh, a certain president who is no longer the president the idea of how the decisions are made that's when we start to get concerns about you know the kind of processes involved i know i I think that's fascinating do you know another thing that you might find fascinating because you're sort of you know taking the conversation along these lines is you know what our emotional experiences as well um, predict more of our health than you would think there's there's a very very big body of evidence uh, from studies that were done in in the u.s but i think more recently migrated to the uk called the adverse childhood experiences studies have you heard of those? No, no, I haven't. Um, they're called the ACE ACE studies. And w- what they did is they've taken a, a cohort of people over a long period of time and measured um, events in their childhood, for, for example, things like divorce of parents or uh, bereavement, abusive experiences, etc. I'm sorry, but I can't remember them verbatim. It's about five. No, don't worry. <laughs> it's, about, it's about five sets of them. And, and what they found is that the, that the more of these adverse events that you, you have, it, it, it really predicts your health in adult life. And that's... Oh, really? Oh, gosh. Really, uh, yeah. Trigger, trigger warning here. Trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Um, but of course, it, it, it taps into, doesn't it, some of the wider debates that we're having just now about um, social inequality. Yeah. You know, so so you know, it really it really sort of hits home that that you know, guess if you're coming from much more deprived socio-economic background, you're more likely to to have these adverse childhood experiences, and then you know, it kind of sets up a wiring the nervous system that that is not not great news. So so you know, it brings home the importance really of you know looking at the things. That I suppose in a sense that COVID is was all also highlighting that there is that that inequality and that's a that's a health inequality but it's mediated often by emotional events so for example the number of aces um, is linked to be able to predict future cancer heart disease um, addiction wow so so lots of stuff so you know I, I guess my hope is that in the next, you know, twenty years, we'll we'll be much more interested in these kinds of conversations um, and in really making those links between emotional and physical health, um, rather than having that sort of more scientific reductionist model that thinks emotions are a little bit a nice to have kind of thing but in fact that's not the case our emotional life is fundamental to our physical health not to mention our, our mental health no I, I, I completely agree and I, I I think that again I think that's very 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 interesting because and it kind of gets to something that actually I've spoken about I've probably spoken about billions of times in my in my life with the hyperbole there but I've certainly spoken about on this podcast before which is the the idea that often when it comes to government policy or um legislation often it's very kind of um broken up and actually there is a need for a kind of more joined up thinking and actually i and i think you're completely right the idea that i think if we look at historically uh, we take the uk historically that idea of people are poor because of some sort of moral failing i mean that's clearly not the case those sort of ideas still permeate certain ideo- ideologies obviously not to name names or anything like that but there are still certain individuals unfortunately individuals mm. often in powerful places who still have ideas of that sort of strain and it, it's toxic it, it is toxic nobody is poor because of some sort of moral failing but certainly there are links that as you as you've said that those who are coming from certain backgrounds because of the conditions in which they they, they grow up in there are there is a propensity or, or an increased likelihood of certain things happening when they're older and that's i suppose that really gets into the question of almost like almost determinism can people make the can make the choices to move themselves away from certain from perhaps their backgrounds if this our kind of human psychology doesn't is in some way so kind of determined on you know those earlier conditions i don't know if that makes sense but i think no, yes I, I do I do completely get get what you're saying absolutely uh, I think it's really really important and I guess it, it's also important for for listeners not to feel that I'm no, saying yeah. that, that you know if this has happened to you then then you've sort of got some kind of sentence on you for the rest of your life because you know we know that's not the case either I'm I, you know and I guess I'm in the business really of you know helping people to recover from these from these events and indeed one can end up in a position where you know Le- learning from adversity is is really important isn't it so so you know we've got examples in our society quite big one right now but, but lots of people who've been through quite a degree of adversity and that's really really helped them to to grow as a person and, and have insights and things that you know that you wouldn't that maybe other people that have an easier ride don't have but 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 nevertheless i, I just think it, it is a political question really because you know if we're not starting off on a level playing field you're absolutely mm. right you know if, if you're just a, you know a concrete example parents parents under stress parents under financial stress it's not their fault but they're not going to have the same ability to maybe relax to pay attention to their children to just to f- have that sense of 
calmness, do, do you know, as, as, as a family who is who's very well financially resourced, just something simple like that. And it's not their fault, but it's just these different stresses are operating on them. So it's, it's, it's important, isn't it, to, for us to, to really think about those factors as influencing people's physical and, and emotional health. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And certainly when we are, you know, we're obviously currently under our third lockdown. It's been a year now, effectively, since COVID first started appearing in the UK, something around about that. And certainly a lot of people are having to come to terms with, with life as it is now. And particularly when we look at um, children who are having to learn from home with the kind of, you know, difficulties that come from that. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're recording over Zoom when I'm sort of got my fingers crossed perpetually to hope that the uh, the stream doesn't just suddenly collapse or something. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, when you're, you know, I mean, I, I suppose I'm, you know, my, my, my daughter is not yet two, so we don't have to kind of go through the whole schooling and things like that. But so you know, if you're a, if you're from a uh, background where perhaps, you know, you're struggling uh, for work or perhaps you're on a minimum wage job and you're having to homeschool your child or support them best you can. I mean, that's a really difficult situation to be in and the kind of impact, not through your own fault, but through the events around you that that will then have on the child. You know, it shows the importance of kind of having, having a, a strong kind of psychological and mental health support network in order to, to, to support individuals as, as they grow up to as you said to kind of break out of the of the negative impacts that that's had on their mental health and well-being obviously the, the you know we're, we're, we're very fortunate in the uk to have the nhs and it's it's a myriad of constituent parts and all the bits and pieces that go with that uh, and it, I, I certainly sort of as you know to follow on to something from something you said i really do hope as we move forward now uh, we've had a lot of I wouldn't want to say revelations but I think we've had a lot of a lot of big headlines about various bits and pieces have been going on in the UK for a long period of time that haven't made that haven't come publicly uh, people haven't been mm-hmm. aware of and I do hope we take that forward and learn from that and I think mental health is one of those and also um, you know as you mentioned already about income and racial inequalities in the UK because clearly there are issues there and in the past they haven't had the you know there hasn't been the reflection on them that there should have been and I do hope that moving forward that we we can be more reflective and that um, public policy can reflect in the future certainly agree with that so if we if we start to look at so we, we've talked a bit about well, i've talked quite a lot about mm. health psychology and, and your work your work so if, if, if we if you don't mind me asking so it's obviously been you know 2020 now into 2021 difficult time are you able to give us any idea what's what's kind of been the impact of the pandemic and the lockdown on people's mental health and well-being so that's a, that's a big question isn't it i think you know the true picture to be honest is, is going to emerge a bit over time but we already know that you know there's been certainly you know an increase rather worrying increase really in reports of domestic violence Mm. and that the the mental health of I think there's there's an indication that that our young people have struggled and I I think I think that there's some data recently about increased incidence of of self-harm in in teenagers for example that's I need to check that as a fact but so so I guess there's and that sort of links to what you were saying, doesn't it, about families under strain as well. And then there's the sort of effects of having COVID itself. So I was in, involved in some interesting discussions yesterday on a, a webinar, which is looking at North Central London and how, how services can be set up for people that are needing support post-COVID itself. So so I guess we've got, we've got the cohort of people who have actually been in ITUs and 
used to do some very interesting work and, and some lectures at UCL with a colleague of mine, a psychologist called Dorothy Wade, who um, is a psychologist working in th- intensive intensive care there. And what we always used to say in our lectures, I haven't spoken to her recently, she's been too busy, but we, we, we always used to say in our lectures was actually being in intensive care increases your risk of PTSD quite significantly. Because, you know, partly because of the kind of disorientation and the drugs that, that are necessary often often there. So you people have lots of experiences where, they, you know, they kind of, kind of have hallucinations and sort of you know very sort of kind of vivid dreamlike experiences and and so so telling the difference between uh, reality and, and and that sort of fantasy it can be really tricky I remember talking to a patient I was working with who had sort of you know quite sort of vivid fantasy it was but about nurses giving him blood from a pig you know but this was this was sort of still worrying him it's like well did they did they do that because your their sense of reality is you know quite quite affected so so I guess yeah so you've got people coming out who who might need some help around their experiences in ICU and then of course you know we know that for some patients they're having so, so yesterday we were talking about sort of you've got your standard acute COVID, if you like, which is probably around about a month. And then now how they're classifying it is from four to 12 weeks is post-COVID. So we know it, it can be a common pattern for people to still experience symptoms. And then and then 12 weeks plus for some people is becoming the, the long COVID. So so I guess it's, it's also about the impact on those people and how we, we, su- we support them uh, with what they're experiencing. And of course, I hope this is answering your question, but of course, um, you know, psychology is really important there too. Because yeah. I guess we were having had COVID myself as well. I, I can, I can, uh, oh, yeah. Well, sorry to hear that. Uh, thank you, but fortunately, I'm, I'm fully recovered, and you know, Touchwood don't really have any long COVID symptoms, as far as I can tell. But you know, certainly having it was a pretty frightening experience. Especially, I did experience quite a significant degree of breathlessness, and that 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 is scary. And you know, if we think about, you know, what what I'm interested in, what I was talking about yesterday was. You know, for patients who are going to the post-COVID clinics and, and maybe the long-COVID clinics, you know, there's, there's a whole job to do there about helping people to understand and interpret their symptoms. Because I guess, you know, if people are having prolonged breathlessness, it's very natural to, to think, gosh, there's something wrong with me, you know, and my lungs are, are permanently damaged. And, you know, we hear this sort of rhetoric about permanent damage. But but I guess, you know, for me, what I'm keen on doing really is, is helping people to recover from COVID. So, yeah, exactly. so although it can be quite traumatic, I think it's really important that we don't give a message that you're traumatized and helpless no of course not you know? no. so number one you might not be traumatized and number two you're certainly not helpless but if you're worrying about your breathlessness then that's going to impact on your behavior right because if we think about hot cross bun again yep. if we've got breathlessness in the physiology arm then we might have a thought about oh my goodness my lungs are damaged and then we might get really anxious and then we might think i better not exercise because yeah. it might damage my lungs more so i think we've got a whole lot of work to do and i'm not saying we've got the right sort of equation yet actually how to help patients sort of pick their way through those anxieties and also make sure that they're getting the right medical checks that they need but to really look at the sort of covid recovery support Um, so so that's a big job Mm. that's that's really interesting and i suppose we we could also you could almost expand that to the kind of wider the, the, the nation or perhaps the world as a whole about how we all come to terms with something which certainly in the west really the the idea of a kind of pandemic is not something that we've really had to deal with probably since the turn of the last century with the Spanish flu or influenza, I should say. And certainly sort of that that's thing to overcome and the, the change to our life and everything else, not to obviously lessen the individual suffering, the individual impact and how we kind of move forward with that. It's interesting. I mean, and I suppose you've got the kind of ancillary bits and pieces around that. Like, for example, one of the things that we've been doing a lot of work on recently is about um, 
supporting and in promoting vaccinations and the importance of the COVID vaccinations. And it's really interesting, interesting in, in the sense of quite concerning, particularly amongst the BAME community, the, the rates of take up are quite low. There is that kind of concern there about the safety of the vaccinations and things like that. And we just need to look at social media to see some of the bits, you know, some of the nonsense being spread about vaccinations all over the place and the danger that causes. And I know I was speaking to, I was speaking to someone the other day and they were talking about how they, they'd been reading a study that about um, numbers of women in their 20s and 30s who were very concerned about getting vaccinated because they were concerned about its impact on their ability to get pregnant in the future. So, and I mean, as far as I'm aware, there's been no signs of anything about any vaccine, any, any of the COVID vaccinations having any uh, risks of infertility. And yet, obviously, there is that concern out there. And I suppose, how do we move past that? How do we reassure people? I suppose that's where, uh, um, you know, the work of yourself and your colleagues comes in, that kind of psychology of understanding why people are using the hot cross bun. <laughs> To understand that, that that kind of thought, how those thoughts are uh, becoming behaviour, and, and then as they become behaviour, I suppose they become a kind of wider kind of community and socially social kind of change, but not necessarily for the for, for good. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, no, that's that's really interesting. I suppose so, something we should we should talk about. We've touched on it a couple of times. Is obviously your uh, one of your specialties is is pain management. Um, and I know we've talked a bit about that kind of connection between the mind and the kind of physical body, but how, I mean, maybe this is a, a sort of stupid question, but how does, so someone who's got say pain in their hip or pain in their leg, how does a clinical health psychologist, how, how, how would you support someone in that situation? Yes. Good question. Um, yes. I'm going to stumble over my answer. Even though I've been doing this work for 20 years, because sometimes it's just quite hard to 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 know where to how to answer like naive questions because I'm so immersed in it but yes it's a good question how can a psychologist help with pain so I think I think my fundamental answer to that would be to come back to what we know about pain so pain we know is a is a psychobiological phenomenon and how we feel pain and how distressed we are by it is very influenced by psychological factors that's that's one thing that's for sure so you know you're you've got a different reaction to pain if you're I'm sure your wife will tell you having a baby (laughs) or running a marathon yes as compared to if someone's you know punching you or you've got acute appendicitis do you know so I've the context those four things happen all oh, right <laughs> you've had one okay certainly <laughs> wasn't the pregnancy <laughs> okay. okay well you must have been running marathons then well yes i'm not sure about that but certainly, certainly. <laughs> no I, no it's uh, i know but you're completely right there are sort of different forms of pain and i suppose certainly sort of i, I wonder what, I, yeah i do I, I suppose yeah there is that kind of different idea of what pain is we kind of know what pain is to ourselves and kind of in a general sense but, I well, suppose is it, to, to the important thing is the con the context of the pain and the meaning of the pain again it, okay. we can bring it back to hot cross bun because if you're having a labor pain, but your thoughts are like, oh, this is really excruciating, but I, I just can't wait to see my baby. Do you know what I mean? Or like, you know, I just, I've, I, I can't, or I can't wait to get this baby out of me, which is a, another thought that certainly I had. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's like your thoughts um, are going to start shaping how you experience that pain. And in fact, um, we know this very scientifically. Uh, There's a a great um, uh, woman called uh, Professor Irene Tracy that's down at Oxford University. It's sort of one of my all-time hero people, but she's she's done lots of research into pain using MRI scanning. And um, so what she's she's brought some nice neat bits bits of science to illustrate this. So 
for example, she got groups of people and the way they look at pain in experimental conditions is they either put a heat pad on, on you somewhere and you know turn up the heat until it's painful or they love to put your hands in buckets of ice because that's pretty painful too. <laughs> so either one of those. Yeah. Um, but what Professor Tracy did was she, she got different groups of people and in one group she induced a low mood so she got them to remember gosh you know when you failed your exams or you know you got divorced or something like this um, and then she got another group and got them to have better memories so she primed in them a better mm. mood so like the day you got married or you know the time when you 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 got your degree or something like this and then she put these people into scanners and um, gave them painful stimuli and what she found was that the group was primed that was primed in a negative mood they actually rated their pain as more severe more distressing wow. and the brain actually showed more activity in terms of processing the pain but the ones with an induced positive mood showed less distress less pain severity and less brain activity so so again you know it really proves that that there's a there's a a real symbiosis which of course between you know how what our emotions and our thoughts are and then what we experience in our bodies that's that's really interesting and i mean it really shows the kind of importance of uh, i guess kind of well-being services like our own or kind of uh, you know kind of psychological support and things like that because it is that i suppose you know if you are already in quite a bad place then obviously pain could be something that's even worse you know particularly at the moment I suppose you know if we take it kind of within the context of COVID and the lock you're in quite a bad place psychologically because of isolation or something like that and then obviously you're experiencing COVID symptoms or something else it could be even more excruciating so that's that's really interesting to see how I mean that's that is sort of fairly kind of uh, undeniable proof of the kind of the effect that are that are emotional states and I guess it goes back to something you said earlier about the importance of emotion and how kind of how they are a very concrete part of our, of our lives and they really need to be taken as such. That, that's fascinating. So then going back to obviously mm. sort of pain management then. So how then would you, if you don't mind me asking, how then would you support an individual to, to, to try and uh, increase their mood or, or, or kind of help them relieve a bit of that pain? I mean, I think, I think you know, part of it, it a key part of it for me is is education that that is a that is a bedrock part so helping people to understand pain even even you know that's the conversation that I'd have with a patient of mine the one that I've just had with you you know to help them to understand how how their mood influences their pain so I think understanding models of pain because because we know from a 20 there's a 2016 meta-analysis done by a, um, a colleague of mine at UCLH um, Alan Fires, and and he estimated that in this country, between a third and half of the population would have some problem with persistent pain, with ongoing pain. So 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 quite you know we're, we're dealing with a lot of people here, and I think it's really important for them to understand pain. So it's it's important to understand the difference between acute pain and persistent pain as well. Acute pain is designed by psychobiologically to be distressing, and it's kind of a good job it is. So if you have an injury then you're going to get pain. And, you know, what pain does is it's processed in the brain um, uh, by the amygdala, which is our, our fear centre. So it's a frightening experience. Um, and, you know, it's unpleasant. It's, mm. The sensory experience is unpleasant. And it often sort of induces sort of two behaviours. One is like to kind of really seek help to, to get rid of the pain. And the other one is to kind of freeze. 
as well, a sort of freeze response. So if you've broken your leg, you're going to be in lots of pain. You're going to be saying, oh, you know, my leg's really hurting, blah, blah, blah. The ambulance is going to come along, pick you up. You go to A&E, hopefully. You don't wait too long, hopefully. And they give you the morphine, which is, morphine is great for helping you dissociate from your pain. And it's that's all okay if it's short term. You know, then the, the, the usual model is the tissue heals, you know, about three months around that and then you go back to normal you ditch all your pain medications and that's it but for a certain proportion of people what we know is the pain system it can kind of malfunction it can kind of just go a bit a bit wrong and it doesn't reset itself quite properly so it's almost like if you have speakers that are blown or something like that they, they, they there's all this crackling and sensitivity that's left over in the nervous system so even the first thing to explain to patients is actually three months later six months later any tissue damage that you've got, say if they did get it post-surgically or something, which can happen, it's pretty much okay now. We know the body repairs. So so what you're you're left with is this, this kind of crackly speaker thing where mm. where the, the pain system has gone a bit wrong. So once they understand that, oh, well, you could have that, but that wouldn't mean that you had a disease or an Ill, illness or, you know, something really wrong with you, but it's just this sort of leftover crackliness. They can start to see that a little bit differently because pain is such a strong signal that something's wrong, that it's very hard to be with psychologically because it's... You you're thinking, no, there's something wrong. They've missed something. I need another test. It wouldn't be painful if that was happening. So it can take people a while to think and to be educated and say, well, actually, in a certain number of people, and a lot of people, actually, their, their pain system can stay a bit a bit sensitized. And, and that's what we think is going on. Not that you've got something missing, you know, something that we haven't detected. And that's the starting point, really, for patients, because... Unless you can get past that, it's difficult to, to get take the next steps. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, 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 it does. And one of the things that sort of jumps out to me is uh, I, I was reading something recently about in the in the US, they have very high rates of um, addiction to opiates. And part of that is linked to um, kind of, you know, because of the, the way that the health services are set up there, um, often uh, in the past, there's been that kind of propensity to push medication uh, rather than perhaps other kinds of support. And then obviously down the line where the medication is taken away, there is that addiction, that dependence. And the individuals haven't had the ability to recognize that the pain may not be physical. It might be something psychological. And by then it's obviously too late that they have an addiction and unfortunately they're not able, always able to get that support. So I, I can really see how that, how there is that risk there. Well, not risk. I mean, you know, but there is that sort of... Um, when individuals, when people are experiencing pain and their body's telling them that there's something wrong, we, we take it as being literal that there must be something. If my leg is hurting, there must be something wrong with my leg. And it takes, yeah. it's, a, it's a different way of thinking to think, oh, actually, it might be something, there might be something misfiring or there might be something actually else going on that that's the reason. And I can see why the work that you're doing is so important to, to try and kind of correct those, you know. Do you know what? I, I just, I think, you know, given that opiate epidemic in America and, you know, and, uh, you know, and not a dissimilar uh, problem in the UK to some extent you know it is so, it, it's so important because what people understand about the condition that includes doctors as well so I'll share I'll share a story with you I, I was I was at a hospital a nameless one let's say and I was walking along the corridor as as I did you know most of the time and bumped into a consultant from a particular discipline who won't say where that's from either and he said to me oh god I'm really glad to see you because I really want to refer this patient to you because I've got this patient and I want you to tell me if they've got physical pain or if they've got psychological pain. And I just stood there and I just thought, oh, my goodness, we've got a long way to go. This is a doctor now who's, who's trying to say, is it physical or psychological? And we can never say that. So no. what, I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it's that distinction that you were rightly making that, you, you know, your leg can hurt. And it's not doesn't mean to say that it's, it's psychological. Yeah. It's not. 
It's physiological because it's the way your brain and your spinal cord and your peripheral nervous system all together are malfunctioning to to you know have give that sort of sensitized signal. But it's what it's not signaling is disease or trauma anymore. So you know it's such an important distinction. And I think a lot of doctors themselves, you know, maybe haven't got that fine tuning. And so what happens, which is really unfortunate, is the patients will go to doctors, they'll say they're in pain. Obviously, doctors, passionate people, they want to put the person out of pain. <laughs> so they they prescribe opiates. Now, the problem to me is, the problem for me is that it's not patients' fault that they get a dependency on opiates. The doctor gives them a thing, you think, right, that's what the doctor's giving me. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about the culture. Something wrong with you, go to the doctor, have the tablet. So they take the tablet. And then what we know about opiates, which is really unfortunate, is that their effectiveness wanes over time because your body adapts. Oh, really? Oh, God. Yes. oh that's why people... Could... Oh, okay, yeah. So that's why we get this awful thing of escalating doses because the patient will go back and say, well, I was on 50 milligrams and now it's not working. So the doctor will go, well, you better have a bit more then. And the problem is that the body adapts and so it needs more and more before it's going to you know, damp down the pain. And the worst thing that happens, not many people know this, when you get to a certain dose of opiates, the horrible thing happens, which is it, 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 the whole system flips. So the op- you get what's called opiate-induced pain. So it actually in- increases your pain when you get oh, beyond a certain amount, which is a, a real mess, a real mess. So, so there's lots of work that needs to go on, to be honest, about, you know, helping doctors to, to, to manage these patients. And I've been really fortunate to work with some amazing doctors you know, during my career anesthetic doctors who's who specialized in working in persistent pain and they're very good at helping people to to come slowly down on their opiates and and substituting other medications that Mm. that can be better for people and with persistent pain and then what's been great is that we've had these multidisciplinary teams that that can then bring in pain management psychology and pain management physiotherapy which is really important as well because people are very concerned about how they can move and how it's safe to exercise and move so you know if we've got these all people wrapped around the patient giving them you know the different advice the medical mm. the physio the psychology the nurse nursing um i'm sure i've probably missed off people but you know um then then they can really help a person reduce the impact of pain on their life and 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 you know and and hold their mood steady so there there, there is there is a lot you can do um around persistent pain but it you know a team approach is, is the best way to go with that really oh, that's that's really useful that's i mean that's really interesting and really useful to know and i think it kind of gets to the the overall purpose point of, of our discussion today which is about that need for that cooperative approach to when we are treating people there needs to be that kind of understanding of the the, the physical the physiological and the, the psychological and as you said that kind of people working together to find the best way to treat patients because clearly the, the human body is very complex and even now i imagine there are still a myriad number of things that we can still learn about how we do things and why we do things and stuff like that so I, th- I think that's that's such an interesting thing and, and particularly at the moment where we are in a quite a, a difficult environment for well for all of us but particularly for many people and they are going through physical pain or psychological pain or f- physiological i'm probably using these terms in the incorrect way but, <laughs> but if, just say pain and then you do if you're using pain but people who are experiencing some sort of form of pain the environment we're in is is it's really exasperating that and it shows the importance of what you and your colleagues do so that's fantastic so what would you recommend if someone is feeling uh, experiencing prolonged pain and they, they they they're looking for that support what can they do how can they get that support 
Yeah, so so hopefully it should be reasonably straightforward now because we've got much, you know, improving services for pain. But that what they need to do is, is go to, to their GP. And if they've been experiencing pain for, for more than three months, they can ask, you know, can I be referred to a pain management clinic? And there are pain management clinics dotted around London um, and the country generally. And so they should be able to to find their way in there if, if they're really struggling and they need more help with, with persistent pain. Is there anything... Have you got any sort of top tips, perhaps in more generally about people's well-being, their physical, their psychological well-being, perhaps things that you've done over the last year to kind of keep yourself up and positive and things? Is there, are there any sort of top tips that you could recommend? Just just an example, you know, I, I very much enjoy cooking. I, people have heard this too many times now. You know, I, I enjoy cooking. I like working. I like that kind of experience of working with my hands and creating something for nothing. When I've had a tough day, it's something that kind of gets me up. I, I enjoy reading. I enjoy uh, spending time with my time with my daughter. Is there anything that anything you'd recommend i think it's it at the end of the day it is about how can you adapt isn't it and you've given us some really good examples of that process of sort of looking around your environment and seeing what opportunities there are in that Uh, you know we're limited now in certain ways but what opportunities are there that weren't there before so like yourself i mean for me there's been an opportunity to sort of spend time with my children in a way that i simply wouldn't have done before i mean I, i didn't know what they were doing at school but now, you know, I can say, oh, you know, my son just designed a video game. I wouldn't have been able to see that. So, but but now I now I can. So, so I suppose it, it's it's for me, it's something about really trying to embrace what is it we're experiencing and what can we learn from this, so that you know, I don't know how we is there going to be a normal. I don't know what the new normal is going to be like. But and and you mentioned also like taking up sort of creative stuff, mm. cooking. Or my dad is he's at the age of seventy six. He's decorating his house. So it, it's sort of what keeps us psychologically healthy in a way is being able to, able to express our values. What do we value? And so if we can keep in, in connection with those values and do things in line with those values, even though we might not be able to do the same things on the external, that, that's going to keep us plugged in to what's meaningful to us. And that's going to keep us going, really. And the final thing I just say is, again, people have said this all over the media, but how can you keep connected with people? We do have Zoom, we do have to make sure that even though you can't physically get to your networks, that you're you're plugged into them as well, because human beings are relational creatures. That is, they're relational creatures. And for all of us, it's very, very tough being separated from, from other people for all of us. Very tough. No, I completely agree. Thank you so much, Dr. Mandeville, for appearing today on our podcast, The Word on Wellbeing. I, I hope you've enjoyed listening. It's I've certainly learned a lot. It's fascinating. So that was Dr. Anna Mandeville. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Chris Hartley, and that was The Word on Wellbeing. Goodbye. <laughs>